Hey, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Good to get a chance to uh, continue in our psalm series. Uh, as Katrina said, this is week number two in a seven-week sermon series. Uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe you remember that Chad uh, taught on uh, the, pr- uh, the psalms of praise. And we learned about regardless of what our circumstances are, regardless of our situation, um, we can say, do you remember? Praise the Lord, regard in the good and the bad. We can say, praise the Lord. Whether you finally get that long sought after uh, promotion at work, or um, as the story Chad told, uh, you're working on your basement and doing some work down there and you're uncovering way more work than you first uh, realized or intended to be working on. And we say, praise the Lord. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, some of the different, uh, I guess, categories of the Psalms, uh, which include kingship, wisdom, lament, remembrance, uh, and thanksgiving. These themes, as you read the Psalms, often don't come packaged together with this pretty bow on top. They are spread out throughout the Psalms. Um, And the one thing that I realized is so often that can be how life is. Um, It was theologian uh, John Calvin that that said this. He said, the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the human soul. He said, for there is not an emotion of which anybody can be conscious uh, that is not represented as in a mirror. So basically... The Psalms reflect the emotions um, that come from our experiences in life. Um, The Psalms can be messy, uh, but they're real. And and we experience things that are are similar to what we see uh, in the Psalms. Again, in the same hour that you get the promotion that something really, really good happens, the next hour uh, you get a call on the phone, you get a knock at the door, and it can be something very, very challenging. Um, But regardless, we can say, praise the Lord. Uh, So today we're going to look at a uh, a passage that gives us a foundation to when life gets shaky. Today we are going to be reading uh, from the Enthronement Psalms. Hmm. Thank you, Larry. We're looking at the enthronement psalms uh, from a cluster of chapters that focuses on kingship, or as you uh, see here, Jesus is king. The question today that I'm going to keep asking is, how do we live if Jesus is our king? What does it look like? When life gets messy, how do we live? What do we do? Today, as we study the passage together, I believe that we will find our answer, and we can start today by taking a brief look at the history of the Psalms. Uh, There are many different writers of the Psalms. They include uh, David and Moses and Solomon and others. Uh, These songs uh, were often written to music. Um, I know uh, Psalm 22, it was intended to be read Uh, to the song, The Doe of the Dawn, which uh, was a popular melody back in the day. 
another one was Psalm 45, uh, which was to be read to the tune of uh, lilies. These uh, Bible chapters and verses would have been treated like the hymns of Israel, and even Jesus would have grown up knowing and singing along to these. Um, the book of Psalms is divided up into five books, and so you can see the breakdown there of the different smaller books. Um, today, I'm going to be looking at chapter 99, so from the middle of book four. Let's read that together this morning. If you have your Bible, if you have your phone, you can get it out, look up Psalm 99, or just follow along on the screen with me. The Lord our God is holy. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king in his might loves justice. You have established You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord. He answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute. Uh, that he gave them. O oh Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. So that was the word of the Lord. Today, we're going to be talking about Jesus being king of our lives. And I wanted to share a couple of points about that from my message today. Number one, being the king is feared. Now let's explore how we should live if Jesus is to be feared. In verse number one, we see the phrase, the Lord reigns. And sometimes it's translated as, the Lord is king. But... I really want to focus on the word reigns today, um, since that's what a king would do. The verb tense in that word reigns is similar what we have in our English language to the present perfect tense, uh, which is used for actions that happen in the past, but are continuing into the future. So the idea here is that the Lord has reigned is reigning, and will continue to reign. He is a completely sovereign ruler. He's not a tribal king. He's a king that is over all the peoples, not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all nations, the king of all people. Verse 1 continues and says, Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. People and earth are physically shaken by the power and the authority of God. He is a God that is to be feared. Now, I, I admit, the idea of fear of the Lord um, can be a little confusing at times. We hear so much about his love and his grace, 
and his mercy, yet the Bible says that we are to fear the Lord. And I admit that that can feel a little counterintuitive. Let's find out what the Bible has to say about fearing God. Corinthian, or 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So it says, since we have these promises, we have to look back to chapter 6 to see what's being talked about. And Paul in chapter 6 is quoting God from scripture saying, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Paul goes on to say, because of those promises, we need to cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit. This is, uh, this is only done through fear of the Lord. A really um, helpful explaining of fear of God, um, I found this from pastor and author uh, John Bevere in his book, Good or God, Why Good Without God Isn't Enough. And John says this, another way of explaining the fear of God is profound respect and even healthy terror, which is different from being scared or afraid. The person who is scared of God has something to hide. So consequently, he or she is afraid of God. Take, for example, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.8. The first thing that they did once they had sinned is hide. Now, on the other hand, the person who fears God has nothing to hide. In fact, he or she is scared of being away from God. End quote. So, to summarize John's explanation there, the fear of the Lord is being terrified of being away from God, and the person who fears has nothing to hide because they are obedient. So, there's another thing that we have to discuss about fear of the Lord. When talking about the fear of the Lord, the other piece is remembering who we are in relationship to our king. And Tim Keller, a pastor and apologist, had this incredible quote um, that helps us better understand that balance of fear and affection. And he said this, the only person who dare wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. The only person who dare wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. Hmm. Let's just sit with that for a minute. That's our Father in heaven. We have that kind of access to the king because we are sons and daughters of the Most High. He is an all-powerful God that is to be feared, yet he loves us so deeply. We can boldly approach his throne because we are his sons and daughters. Now, growing up, my parents owned a cleaning business, and the way that it was kind of set up 
is my mom would be cleaning the, the houses during the day. My dad was the one that would often be working on the commercial accounts and the businesses at night after they closed. So it was pretty regular for my dad's sleep schedule to be um, just, just uh, very unusual. Uh, he would get home really late at night or early in the morning, and then he would sleep um, for you know, part of the day until he could catch up on his sleep. Now, it was, it was pretty well known in the Buser household that when dad was sleeping, you do not wake dad up. Now, if there was an emergency or you needed dad, of course, you could, you could wake him up and he would, he would be able to help you out. I recall some of the tense moments that something would happen and we needed dad. And so we would have to wake him up. There was a seriousness and an intentionality that came in those moments. Similarly, with kings, you don't approach them unless you are called, up, called upon, right? That could bring serious consequences against you or your family. When dad woke up, right, I, don't, I didn't know how tired he was. Was he going to be upset? Was he going to be mad? What was going to happen with a king if he was in the wrong mood, right? Would he send you off to prison, you and your family? Would you be killed? Approaching a king was very serious. So what's the big deal? Why do we need to have a fear of the Lord? I want to share another story um, from John Bevere's book that we mentioned earlier. Um, now, this was a conversation between John and a very popular um, televangelist from the 1980s, um, he never mentions his name in, in the story here, but you, if you were aware of the news and things that were happening back then, um, you might be able to, to guess um, who is being referred to in this story. So I'm just going to read this to you about the fear, understanding the fear of the Lord. These scriptures about the fear of the Lord became real when I visited a famous televangelist in prison. He was the most well-known minister on TV in the 1980s. He had committed crimes against our nation's government, along with committing adultery. One of my books had touched him deeply, and the televangelist had requested that I come to prison and visit him. One of his first statements to me was, John, this was not the judgment of God that put me in prison. It was his mercy. Because if I had kept living the way that I was living, I would have ended up in hell forever. John said, his statement stunned me. I was overwhelmed by his candor and humility. In his book, John continues to say, after 20, of so, or 20 or so minutes of listening to him, I asked the nagging question. I knew that he loved Jesus greatly at the beginning of his ministry and had been on fire for God. I wanted to know, how did he lose his passion? Finally, I simply asked, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? At what point I was seeking the signs of losing our love for him, especially as a minister? I didn't, the televangelist answered firmly. I was shocked and slightly appalled by his answer. How could he say that? I shot back. What do you mean? You committed adultery. You committed fraud. You're locked up in prison. How can you say you didn't fall out of love with Jesus? Again, he looked me straight in the eye and without any hesitation said, John, 
I loved Jesus through all of that. I was silent. I'm sure my face registered enormous confusion. Then he said it. John, I loved Jesus, but I never feared him. End quote. The love of God, our king, can spur us on to do many things, whether it be um, showing kindness and love to a neighbor, showing up for church on a Sunday morning to be in fellowship with one another, um, worshiping God, doing acts of service. But it is the fear of the Lord that brings obedience. So what does the Bible say about that? Proverbs 8.13, all who fear the Lord will hate evil. Proverbs 16.6, by fearing the Lord, people avoid evil. Remember in verse 1, it said the king is to be feared. Now as we go back to our passage, we're going to look at verses 3 and 5 and see the next point, how the king is holy. The king is holy. In verse 3, And in verse 5, we see this refrain from the text. It says, holy is he. And at the end of verse 9, we see the words, for the Lord our God is holy. Now, you have most likely already heard and are aware about um, a a literary device used in the Bible to create emphasis. So when the Bible was being written, obviously they didn't have computers. Um, You weren't able to do uh, bold font or italicized or underlined. Um, So they used repetition instead. And there's different ways uh, to create emphasis in our writing. So I have a question for the students this morning. Have you ever gotten the all caps text from mom or dad? Talk about emphasis. So you're out hanging out with friends and mom and dad says, I want you home at 10 o'clock and you lose track of time, or maybe you're on your way home, your phone bings, and you get this. Now, that emphasis will strike fear in the hearts of the best of us. The early Hebrew uh, did not use exclamation points uh, like we have in English, so they had to find other ways of um, expressing, or uh, yeah, expressing emotions in their writing. One of the w- ways they did that is through repetition. We see it used in the Old and the New Testament. Uh, in Samuel, Second Samuel 18, we find the story of David and his son Absalom. In hearing about Absalom's death, David cries out, "Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom." I would have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. In Isaiah 6, we have Isaiah's vision of the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is full of his glory. And in Revelation 4, um, we see the four living creatures crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Uh, Many Bible commentators would agree that these repetitions were not literally spoken um, as it's written, right? Um, David probably did not say, my son, five times in a row with very few words in between. Um, The idea there is the focus isn't on the quantity of the words of the phrase, but rather the intensity and the intentionality 
of those specific words. Um, another neat thing to note is R.C. Sproul, in one of his most famous sermons, um, Holy, 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 um, tells us that out of all of God's attributes, out of all of his characteristics, holiness is the only one in the Bible that is ever used in the triplicate, which means repeated three times. Uh, other, other times that we're writing and, and learning about God or um, we're, we're, we're seeing it written in the Bible, whether it's God's love. We don't see love, love, love. We don't see judgment, judgment, judgment. We don't see wrath, wrath, wrath. What do we do see? Holy, holy, holy. So there is something to that. So God is holy. I think we're getting that at this point. But what is holiness and how is he holy? Walter Brueggemann and his Psalms commentary says this. He says, the Hebrew notion of holiness has to do with being set apart. Yahweh is set apart in the sense of being incomparable, different, unlike any other. This God is not set apart from the world, however, but rather set apart to the world. So he's not set apart from the world. He is with us, but he is different from, from the, or he's different to the world, from the world. Um... We serve a God who is unlike and incomparable to any other ruler that has ever existed. Now, whether it be from the Bible or whether it be from history, we see stories of kings and we know how people rule. People rule um, by greed, manipulation, control, and fear. Earthly rulers, they will do whatever they can to keep advancing their kingdom, regardless of the cost. They're always trying to climb higher and higher on that ladder of power. And that's because there's always somebody who's trying to take what they have. There's always an adversary that's trying to get them, if you will, or, or, or destroy their kingdom. But let's look at our king, Jesus. How does he rule? He willingly stepped down from his throne in heaven and gave his own life for you and for me. He is incomparable. He is set apart. He is a different king. Verses 4 and 5 are sandwiched between the refrain, holy is he. Now, this is a different kind of literary device where in between two of those repeated refrains, we have to see what's in the middle to see how God is holy. So what does it say? The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. God is holy because in his might he loves justice. And as I stated before, earthly kings in their might, they love what? They love power. They love riches. They love pleasure. But our God loves justice. He established equity. How often do we hear the word holiness talked about in the context of equity? Probably not that much. Too often in church and too often have God's people used holiness as a weapon instead of a healing agent. And this is how spiritual abuse enters the church. Holiness gets used for control and for power, for creating separation between church leaders and the rest of the congregation, right? It's either my way or the highway. To use um, Josh McCullough's words, pastor from uh, Mount Joy, when he came and spoke here, we do that to avoid messy church. 
right? Because if leaders can keep everything nice and tidy, everything's great, no problems, do it my way. Hmm. Instead, we should practice holiness relationally, walking with each other, encouraging each other to run with perseverance for the race that's marked out for us. From Hebrews 12.1, Brueggemann says, holiness is thus not a separatist stance, but a relational stance. Yahweh relates to the world in a distinct way, and Israel is called to reflect that same stance. So the way that God treats people, we need to treat people. God is above the mess, but he is not distant from the mess. He walks with us on our journey, and we need to do the same for others, striving for holiness. In verse 4, it says he executed uh, justice and righteousness in Jacob. What does that mean? Ultimately, he's prophesying Jesus, the Messiah, and that he is to be exalted and worshipped. So point one, we're to fear God. Point two, God is holy. And point three, the king is merciful. At the bottom of our text, verse eight points out that Moses, Aaron, and Samuel were among his priests and called upon his name. God answered them. They kept his decrees and his statutes that he gave them. They obeyed God. These three served as intercessors between God and the people, which also embodies the justice that's emphasized in the psalm. These leaders are remembered for their powerful prayer and hearing the voice of the Lord. God is described in this section as being merciful in forgiving them, but also holding them accountable for their, for their wrongdoings. We know that because scripture tells us that that's how he always has been. Moses and Samuel, their stories have proved this over and over. Now, I don't have time to go through every example of that in the life of Moses, in the life of Samuel, but I do want to name a few examples. We know that Moses on Sinai, on, in uh, the, uh, chapter, Exodus chapter 32, when God said that he was going to wipe out Israel, but what happens? Moses intercedes, and God's anger is relented. In Numbers 12, we have Miriam that grumbled against Moses and was turned into a leper, but Moses interceded, and she was forgiven. Numbers 14, when the children of Israel failed to enter the promised land, and God threatened to wipe them all out, but Moses interceded. Now for Samuel's side, we remember how the ch children of Israel offended God by asking for a king and how God was ready to destroy them, but Samuel interceded on behalf, on their behalf, and God turned away from his fierce anger. What we can learn through these Bible examples is that when people mess up, if we repent, God shows mercy. Moses and Samuel prayed for forgiveness. God answered them, and we can certainly expect the same from him today. He is both merciful then and now. So in summary, I want to go back to our original question that we're looking at today. If Jesus is our king, how do we live? And I think we can sum it up in one word. And the word today is obedience. 
We obey him because the Bible says he is to be feared. We obey him because he is holy. He is unlike any other. There is no one like God. And in our obedience, we strive to be holy as he is holy. However, when we stumble, God is merciful to forgive. So now I ask, what does that obedience look like in our life? Every day when I, um, I drive home from work and I'm coming through Lancaster City, often I see people on the side of the road um, who are, who are asking, asking for money. Sometimes I give and sometimes I don't. But do you ever stop and take time to ask God what he wants from you? Who knows where a simple act of kindness may lead? But what happens? In those moments, we start throwing out all of the questions. Do they really need the money? Shouldn't they be looking at for a job instead of standing on the side of the road? What are they going to be spending my money on? Today, we learned that holiness means to be set apart. So these promptings to give or to do whatever it is that God is leading you to, towards comes from the Holy Spirit. So it shouldn't surprise us just by the name Holy Spirit, the things that he's leading us towards can be very different from what we would normally do because he is the Holy Spirit. Our natural reactions can come from our flesh but we need to trust how God is leading. If he says give, then we give. Secondly, how do we apply it? Is there any sin that we willingly tolerate in our lives? It's sin that over time we've either, either gotten too comfortable with, we justify it, or we've gotten extremely good at hiding it, acting like it's not there. Because God is holy and sin separates us from him, today is the day that he's calling us to confess and give that area back, uh, give that area of our lives back to him. I've heard it said that everybody loves the idea as Jesus as Savior, right? Because if Jesus is Savior, we're good, all of the weight of responsibility is on him, and we can do whatever we want. But we know that he is also to be Lord of our lives. He is our Lord and our Savior. It's not just one or the other. You can't just have one or the other. Are you ready to invite the king to be Lord of your life? And are you ready to give him control of every area of your life. Are we obedient? When God says give, we give. When God says, I need you to move across, across the United States, you move. Whatever it is, God tells you to do it, we obey. I just want to pray for us, and I invite the worship team to come back up in closing. Lord, you are king. You are unlike anybody else, any other ruler. God, you are set apart. All-powerful God, all-knowing God, give us the faith and trust 
to follow you. To when you speak, we listen. To when you show us a way, we go. Help us not to question. Help us to follow how the Holy Spirit, Spirit that is so different from the things that we want and we want to do, because you are holy. God, help us, as we sang today, build my life. Help us to build our lives around those principles today. You are our rock. You are our foundation. We worship you.